Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. Hello and welcome to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. This is the Arts Commission's weekly turn at the microphone here at MPB. And over this past month, we have been honoring and learning more about our Governor's Arts Awards recipients for 2024. And the ceremony is coming up on February 8th. It'll be at the two Mississippi museums in Jackson, and it's open to the public, so please come on down. If you want to learn more about the, the particulars of the event, you can go to our website, the Mississippi Arts Commission at arts.ms.gov. But that said, we are now going to talk with our Lifetime Achievement recipient for this year, Mr. Earl Poole Ball. Earl, welcome. Good to be here, Larry. Thank you so much, and congratulations on your on your award. It's it's very well deserved. Thank you so much. It, it came as a surprise to me. I'm just so thankful. So we're going to dig into your career as a musician and a producer and a performer that spans back, and and so many people you've worked with over the years. But maybe just for people who are like, uh, you know. Uh, you're, you're a native of the Foxworth, Columbia, Mississippi area, I think Marion County, is that correct? Yes, I sure am. And so give people just, if, if somebody met you on an elevator what, and they said, what do you do, Earl? How do you, how do you describe yourself to them? Well, let's see, at present, I would just say, well, I'm a piano player and singer because that's what I'm doing right now. If they asked me some historical things, I would say, well, I've produced records and I've been in the movies and. I sang and played in the movies, and I've just done a whole bunch of things. And I, they probably would start walking away shaking their head because <laughs> we didn't ask him all that. <laughs> we just want to know who, kind of who he was because he looked strange. <laughs> or they would say, I can't believe that he actually did all those things. Yeah. But uh, that's that, the amazing that, thing. That's some homeless guy making all that up. That's what they <laughs> So Earl, you are you are a native of, of Marion County. You're now out in you've been in Austin, Texas for many years, but you've been, been all here over for, the world. Yes, I, I've been I live now here in Austin. I've been here for twenty three years. Yeah. And I've gone back I went back and forth many times to visit my mom who lived in uh, uh Foxworth and uh and in and in Columbia and uh but uh I've been here now in Texas for twenty three years. I do go back there. I'm looking forward to going back and visiting my my friends uh, in Marion County, maybe sometime this year. I would have been there already, except the COVID came up and I quit traveling much around COVID time. Sure, that's understandable. So for people who, uh, just to give, just a, and we're going to talk about all this as we go through the, the interview today, but you had a long association with Johnny Cash, playing in his band for over two decades. Uh, you worked with tons and tons of, of legendary musicians, like including Graham Parsons, Buck Owens, Merle Haggard, yeah. and, and then also had this side film career as well, which is quite amazing. So uh, before we get all to that, I just want to kind of get back to where it all started. And you talk a little bit about kind of growing up in Marion County and kind of music in your family and kind of how you first ca caught the bug. Well, well, let's see. <laughs> 
My aunt, my aunt Catherine Ball, she was married to my bro father's brother, and she was my aunt by marriage. She taught music in Foxworth there. She was also the, the music director of the Foxworth First Baptist Church. And uh, so my mother wanted me to take some piano lessons. She said, I, I said, Mother, I'd rather be out there playing ball with those guys instead of practicing the piano. And she said, well, son, if you would just learn how to play the piano, you could be popular at parties. <laughs> That's the line she shot me. I said, well, okay. So I started taking these piano. Which that, that convinced did that convince me, you yeah. of her way of yeah, thinking? Yeah, that did. I want to be popular at parties when I got older. So I I, uh, I took these piano lessons, and uh, I grew to to be able to play in church. And then I learned how to play with songs on the radio. I learned the chords. I learned chord structure. And uh, it wasn't long after I learned that that I got to play in a local band with Tim Gillis and a bunch of other boys in Foxworth there and in Columbia. We played the Marion Theater a couple of times and on the courthouse square and, and at the VFW and the American Legion and places like that. They're not, not that many places to play around there. So we did that. And, uh, and so I, I got to thinking I'd rather, I'd like to expand this while I was in high school. And I got to thinking I would really like to play on television. And, uh, there was two shows, Farmer Jim Neal up in, uh, Jackson, Mississippi, and there was a Jimmy Swan show there in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. The Farmer Jim Neal show was uh, something that my friend Francis Neal, who was uh, related to him, I think his his niece, she got me on that show up in Jackson. I'd go up there maybe once every few months and sing on his show. And then the Jimmy Swan show over in Hattiesburg, Bobby Enlow, who's a local guy there in Foxworth, he said, man, I, I'm going to tell you, uh, Jimmy Swan about you and maybe you can get uh, on our local TV show that we do on Thursday nights and so he did and I went over and auditioned for Jimmy Swan in his uh, radio studio there and played played some songs and so he hired me and I started every Thursday night playing on local television and in Columbia, in Hattiesburg it's the Hattiesburg Law radio station WDAM and it was sponsored by Red McCaffrey uh, Red McCaffrey's grandson was Eddie Hodges, and I met Eddie Hodges there. Later on, when I moved to California from Texas, Eddie Hodges helped me meet people out in California. So uh, anyway, that's down the line a little ways. But anyway, that's how I got started in, in uh, Foxworth. I took my piano lessons there and hitchhiked to Hattiesburg and rode the bus to Jackson. Sometime I hitchhiked to Jackson. It was back when you could hitchhike without fear of uh, killing uh, people People would pick you up without, without fear of being uh, assailed, you know. That was years ago when you could do that. So uh, I don't know how I got into all that, but uh, it was fun to do that. I met a lot of nice people. Who were some of your early heroes in terms of piano players that you listened to or that you were trying to emulate? Well, I, I, I listened to Dale Wood on, on the Grand Ole Opry, and, uh, and then I listened to the Nashville Records and I didn't know at the time who all was playing on those. Somewhere and a little later on, I got to I learned about uh, Floyd Kramer and Pig Robbins. But that was when I was Floyd Kramer. I learned about when I was like 18. He had last date out, and my father bought me a piano to keep it. I had gone. I'd left home at that time uh, by 18. I was living in Hattiesburg, and he bought me a piano and 
set it up at uh, in my uh, apartment. Well, I rented an apartment over there with uh, the wife I had at the time, and <laughs> and I practiced last date, and I, I kind of got onto the Floyd Kramer where to play, and I used that a lot. I think I saw you uh, doing that tune with uh, like at a, as a feature on a Johnny Cash show. Is that something? Oh yes, oh yes, Johnny. The, back to that elevator. To cut short to everything and to really impress people, I guess all I have to say is, oh uh, yeah, I'm this piano player for Johnny Cash for 20 years, and then I don't have to talk about all that other stuff. That's that's the best way to identify myself. And then they, oh, you really you played piano for Johnny Cash? I said, yes, ma'am. And he was a great guy because I know the next time thing they're going to ask me was he really so nice a guy? <laughs> and I guess go ahead and answer that before they ask me. <laughs> Now, but you have many, many, you covered many miles before we, we got a ways to go to before we meet up with Johnny Cash. Oh, yeah, Cash we got a ways before we got there, but I just, that's the elevator question. <laughs> that's the right Absolutely. one. No, that's the, that's the, lead, that's a good lead name to put out there for sure. Um, he seems to be more popular than ever. Um, oh, yeah. You're listening. Oh. You're listening to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Earl Poole Ball. He is the 2024 Lifetime Achievement Recipient for the Governor's Arts Awards. Governor's Arts Awards will be taking place this year, February 8th, Thursday, February 8th, at the two Mississippi museums. Come on down. Uh, so, Earl, I think you pretty early on had to head out of Mississippi, though, to kind of further yourself as a musician, right? Yes, I did. Uh, my father came to me one day. And he said, you need to get out of here and go somewhere else. But the, that first early teenage marriage was just falling apart. And uh, I'd, ha I'd tried every way to make enough money to make a living back there just playing the piano. And there wasn't enough, but I got a job selling Fuller Brushes, and I did that. I sold Fuller Brushes door to door and played the piano on the weekends. Well, that it was time, but as I said, the marriage was falling apart. And my father thought I should go somewhere else. He said he thought I had talent. I should go somewhere else where I could make something out of myself. So he gave me three $100 bills, three new suits of clothes, and a new suitcase. And he said, head west, young man. So I caught a bus. I made, I made it an agreement with some guys in, uh, in Hattiesburg, that, that a, a band that I played with some of the time. They said they wanted to leave town, too. It was, they, weren't getting, they weren't getting enough work. It was just a time when you, there was never enough work. I headed west. I, I wanted to go first and visit my uncle in Orange, Texas, which I did. It was my father, another one of my father's brothers. I spent a week there. And then they came through, these other guys from Hattiesburg, Danny Ray and his brother and a couple of other musicians. They came and they picked me up at my uncle's place in Orange. And we drove on to Houston, got a, checked into a motel there. And started, there was a cheap motel, and started looking for, we all lived in one big room with a hot plate. <laughs> and we started looking for work and found work at a place called the Silver Dollar Lounge across on the other side of Houston. And we moved over there and started working in a, using the band. And uh, they, the club owner had, a, had his wife's piano put in there. She wasn't very happy about that. But uh, but she would become an organist more than a piano player as of late at that time. So I had that piano to play, and I had um, those guys to play with, and uh, I stayed there about two and a half years at that 
place called the Silver Dollar Lounge. I never knew why they called them lounges. Uh, there were just clubs in, te- in, in Louisiana and Mississippi, but they called them lounges in Texas. So uh, that's what I that's what I did there for a while, and I learned a lot. Glenn Campbell would come out and sit in because his brother was a, a fan. When he was in town visiting his brother, they were close. Glenn would come out and sit in. That's how I got to meet him. And uh, also Mickey Gilley took an interest in me because I played the piano. And he tried to help me, showed me a lot of things about tuning, putting our old bass strings on whenever your strings would fall apart. So I, I got to meet friends there that uh, helped me later on in life. And and I loved Houston, Texas. But after about four and a half years, I was, uh, I was tired of Houston. It was time to go to California. That's where everybody ends up. So talk about people think about, uh, so you're going out to, uh, California in the 1960s and everybody thinks, Oh, you know, the rock and roll, the doors, all the LA kind of rock scene, but talk about the, the country music scene that you joined out there. What was that like when you got out there? Well, I had a friend out there by the name of Dick Stubbs that I had met in Houston. He was a steel guitar player and, uh, he put me in his band. I got to play with in his band for a while. And then I worked with Vern Stovall for a while. I started working my way in from San, the San Bernardino, Fontana area on into L.A. And it was a busy scene at that time. There were a lot of Okies and Arkies there, descendants of the people that came in from the Dust Bowl. And uh, they loved country music, so it was, it was plentiful. Those people are, are not there anymore, but uh, they were there then. So there was a lot of country music work. I put together, actually it was bequeathed to me, an all-night jam session on Saturdays and Fridays and Saturday nights by Vern Stovall, who moved to Texas. And he, he, he had worked with him a bit. He was quite a good songwriter, and he had a hit record. He moved to Texas, gave me these jam sessions. And on these jam sessions, I, we had all the people from, from as far north as Oxnard, as far south as San Diego, musicians that just wanted to come and drink coffee and play their own music. And the, they love to get in and play with each other. It became like a, a social thing and a musical thing at the same time. It would start around 3, 3 a.m. in the morning, go to around 8 or 9 the next day, sometimes to 10 o'clock. And I did that on the weekends, plus play at the, uh, the Palomino Club in North Hollywood. And that's where I got to meet Graham Parsons. And was that uh, the, the jam sessions? I think I wrote that there were different types of musicians. It wasn't just country musicians oh, that came to oh, that? Oh, we, we had jazz musicians and we had country musicians and we had some bluegrass musicians and we had some rock and roll musicians. And the, the whole thing was, was to get those musicians of their different types. They didn't get to play with one another all the time. But I always tried to group the different kinds together so I might have a a jazz musician from one band and a jazz musician from another band. They were really great. They never got to play together. They could wind up jamming it at this jam session. Plus the country people were the same way and, and the bluegrass folks. And, and, uh, and then there were a lot of great singers that were there that were just getting started. And my band would sometimes back them up. A lot of good country singers, female and male. And, uh, so it was, uh, I had a, I had a great, unusual kind of band of my own. I had a rock and roll bass player and a, and a old time uh, big band drummer and a jazz guitar player and wow. me. And we had fun. We had fun. These are those are great guys. 
some of my best some of my best days. I was going to say, I, 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 it must have been a great introduction to kind of the wider music scene in, in, L, in L.A. as well, to have all those people coming through, to meet them and get a sense of who they were and that. Yes, it was, and that helped me, uh, gave me a leg up on, uh, it gave me a chance to meet so many more people than I would have otherwise, Yeah. if I was just playing in one place. One name that, that comes up that I saw, who I remember from like kind of reading in the history of country music, somebody that I think had a big influence on kind of your trajectory was uh, the musician and producer Cliffy Stone, who, oh, uh, yes. who, yeah, I saw that he kind of helped you out. And I just wanted to maybe tell a little about him and how he kind of changed your direction as a musician. All right. Cliffy Stone came into my life because I was playing on some demos, home demos of a songwriter in uh, Hollywood. I, I was living in uh, El Monte, California. And this guy would come over with his tunes. He used to come around the bar and he's got these songs as a songwriter. And I had a little piano in there, a little electric uh, Fender Rose piano. And I would play for him to put his songs down. So uh, he just tape them in, you know, with a little tape, tape recorder he had. And uh, he, w- he would take those songs up to Cliffy and Cliffy's son. And they would listen to these tunes and they got to thinking, well, who is that piano player? We like the way he sounds. And so um, uh, they said, won't you have him come in here and play some for us? And I did. I came in and played on a live demo session, and they loved what I played. So they started hiring me to play on all their demo sessions for their songs. Different songwriters that they had under contract would bring in, say, eight or nine or ten songs, and they would go to a very rushed kind of recording session and maybe get five or six of them down. Jimmy Bryant was on those sessions, the great guitar player. He had been a friend of Cliffy's for a long, long time. He had used to work Cliffy's radio shows. And so, uh, but through through Cliff, for, through knowing Cliffy and knowing Jimmy Bryant and, and uh, the other people I'd meet on those demo sessions, I began to gradually get uh, recording uh, gigs from other people in town. And then Cliffy... Uh, Cliffy, after I did a live gig with Cliffy, a party, he asked me to go and get a Western shirt. And I said, no, cool, no problem. I went to a Western wear store and got the shirt and got me a little bolo to wear with it. And uh, I, I don't know, I did whatever he wanted me to do. And he became impressed with me as a human being, not just as a musician, but as a compliant human being and a good guy. And he offered me a job at his music uh, music publishing company called Central Songs to pl- pitch tunes to artists as they would come through town and play the Palomino Club. He recognized that I had this network of people from my jam sessions and that, that I got in and out with people really good. And uh, so that was great. So he hired me and that way I kind of backed off on some of that too much work I was doing. And, uh, but not a lot. I still kept doing too much work. I wanted to do everything. I was young and, uh, I was able to, uh, con- I was able to do a lot, uh, of, uh, hours in a week behind the piano. And I grew as a musician because I worked with better and better people. And, uh, I'm sure they, uh, had to drag me along a little bit, but I did get to 
more session-wise. And then uh, Ken Nelson, uh, uh, that's a friend of, was a friend of uh, Cliffy Stones, who was the vice president in charge of country music for Capitol Records, uh, began to notice my demo session playing. At about the same time, Buck Owens uh, heard about me. And so I started doing a lot of records for Capitol, uh, playing playing on the live, on the master sessions. So that all all that got and and a lot of that fed back into uh, the other work that I got. For instance, uh, I was working with with Cliffy, and I did play on the demo of the Only Daddy That'll Walk the Line. And so when Linda Ronstadt decided she wanted to record the song. They sent me over with the female lyrics to Linda, and I got to play on her session of that. And such a gracious, sweet lady, so talented. And Cliffy was in my corner all the way. He hit, he put a good word in with me with uh, uh, Ken Nelson at Capitol when Ken was looking for a junior producer to assist him with his stuff over there. So I got hired by Capitol Records. So, but in the meantime, I'm doing my my. Uh, jam sessions on the weekend after about a year i quit doing the jam sessions because it was just too much and uh, i just worked fully in the studios but cliffy without cliffy's assistance and uh endorsement uh, with it, it it really helped me without it it might have taken a lot longer i also had the endorsement of a, a gentleman named eddie miller who wrote please release me i had done some demos for him and he got me on a session that uh, uh, that that recorded this whole. Uh, he met. He wrote a country music operetta, and uh, it was the only one I know of. And so he uh, he got me uh, on that session. Billy Liebert was a conductor and a great pianist, but he wanted to just conduct. It was with strings and everything, and uh, so it was a good. Uh, but I'm in, in California and really enjoying myself at, 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 at that point and being very uh, productive. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. And as part of our uh, upcoming uh, festivities for the annual Governor's Arts Awards. We're talking to each of the uh, recipients over this past month, and today we're talking with our Lifetime Achievement recipient for this year, Earl Poole Ball, musician, producer, performer. And uh, so, Earl, you're out in California, and you're working in a lot of country music, country music sessions, and but then you meet this wild-haired rocker, Graham Parsons, who legendary people know for now, but he was just getting his start back then, and so tell me about how that came about. Well, Graham, Graham came out to my jam sessions, and I didn't really know who he was. 
But I, I was wide open to everybody coming up and sitting in, and long hair didn't bother me. I think it bothered some people, but it didn't bother me at all. And uh, he came up and played some piano, sang some, and it was when he was recording the International Submarine Band album when I first got into his uh, into his radar. And uh, J.D. Manis was playing the steel guitar in the Eddie Drake band, and I was playing in that band, too, during the week. It was before the, the Palomino. And this was at the Aces Club. I played the, the weekly piano there for, you know, five, six days a week, and then my jam sessions on the weekend. Well, Graham came out and uh, set in, and we barely spoke, but I backed him up on some stuff when he played guitar, and then he played piano, and I just sitting marveled at where well, he could play both instruments well. And he, he sang really good country music. So I kind of got to know him that way. I didn't remember the name, but I remembered the, the guy. And so in about a couple of weeks, J.D. Manus, who played the steel guitar there at the time, he was just, and who I had known since he was underage in bars down in Oakieville, that's one of those bars down in San Bernardino, Fontana area. They named it Oakieville because we had so many Okies coming in. <laughs> so, so that's where I'd met JD, and that's how long I had known him, which was several years there, if you can consider four or five years, several. And uh, he said, These hippie guys down there in LA, they want you to come down and play some piano. I'm making a record with them. They, they're all hippies, but, but uh, they love country music and want to know if you could come down and play. I said, well, J.D., that's what I do. I play on recording sessions for people. Tell them, yes, I'll be there. He said, well, we're going to supposed to get back in the studio on Tuesday around 2 o'clock. I said, well, okay, you tell them I'll be there. And so I showed up. And so, lo and behold, there was a guy there, uh, uh, Chris. Uh, Chris Etheridge? Huh? Was it Chris Etheridge, the, the bass player? Chris Etheridge was on yeah. bass from Mississippi. Yeah. And such a beautiful guy. We hit it off right away. And he talked kind of fast like this, kind of low and kind of fast. And he was great, though. A wonderful bass player, wonderful guy. And, and Graham, and then he had a couple other people. I didn't know exactly who they were, but they were nice. They were all nice people. Susie Jane Holcomb was the, uh, the producer lady. And I knew her through Lee Hazelwood, who used to come out to the Palomino Club on Monday nights when I, I did have a Monday night at the Palomino Club while I was doing the Aces. That was part of my overwork work, <laughs> being everywhere at once as I could be. Actually, the key to my success might be just being everywhere at once as often it helps, as you can yeah. be. If you're young enough and can keep up the pace, it's good. Now, this the International Submarine Band was a record put out on Lee Hazelwood's label. Yes, it so did come out on his did label. Did you have any, beyond this... I'm just curious about your connection to Lee Hazelwood and if you had any kind of interactions with well, him. Well, Lee Hazelwood used to used to come to the Palomino a lot. And the first time I met him was on one of my Monday night shows, which was before Graham, I think. I remember he, we sat there both and said to each other, says, uh, you know, he said to me, he says, you know what I can't understand is why Glenn Campbell isn't a star. That was his comment of the night. He didn't talk a lot, but he did talk. You know, he liked me and I liked him. In fact, my second ex-wife went to work with him when we split up. <laughs> well, she had to have a job. So uh, 
Anyhow, <laughs> anyhow, but at this time, I didn't know him quite that well. Anyhow, on this uh, international submarine band, I think Glenn Campbell had played on one of the tracks, and Joe Osborne had played on one of the tracks. Graham was supposed to have a band, but he didn't really have a band. He had like one or two of the old band left hanging in there with him. But uh, he used some session people like me and J.D. But uh, one of the guys or two of the guys was still in the band that were songwriter friends of his that they wrote tunes together. So it, it was uh, it was on the drums for the International Submarine Band was a drummer that I had met in Las Vegas on my way to California. Actually, I'd gotten to California, and I was playing at the Fontana uh, club called Oakieville. Dick Stubbs, like I say, he gave me that job there. And Eddie Hodges, I had gone and visited with Eddie Hodges, and he gave me the number of this place. We were doing this show in a deserted mine shaft in Las Vegas that Eddie had been a guest on, and he told the producers that they needed a piano player because they didn't have one. And so they called me and I went over there and recorded for about two weeks uh, on this uh, country, a go-go. This is the thing I missed when I was talking to you about uh, San Bernardino before I went to the Palomino club. So the drummer that was on that session happened to be the drummer that was on ground session. I met that guy. That's kind of highly coincidental. John Cornell was a drum drummer for uh, the International Submarine Band. What did you think of the music of Graham's music at the time when you were playing with him? Well, it was good. It, it was a little ragged, but it was good country music. They had a good beat, and uh, and they had they were doing some classics. And it was the first time I, I played with somebody else doing I Still Miss Someone, which I played later on with Johnny Cash for years and years and years. And it's... Uh, he was doing great music. He was doing country music. They were just a little ragged compared to what you would do if you were in Nashville at the time. Or, But uh, J.D. and I just pulled it together, I think, for him a lot on, on several of those cuts. It was fun. It was fun. I enjoyed the rapport that we had down there. I, I got along with those guys. They were all about five years younger than me or a little bit more, yeah. but I'll just – wide open fun let's have a good time let's make some music yeah you know so after you did that record you just kind of went back to your thing or when was the next time did they call you again then for sweetheart Uh, well it was next the next time i think was in the next year after graham had kind of left his own group and his own group name he got a job with the birds and uh then i can't remember if if i got the call from jd or from graham one of the two called me to come up to the bird sessions. And uh, by that time, I was working for Cliffy. So I came up and, you know, once again, that's what I did. I was one part, of my, part of my many jobs, one part of them, was to go play on people's sessions. And I hadn't, didn't know much about the birds. You know, I didn't know the history because at, at that particular time, I was just mainly into country music. Right. But that's what they, they were moving wanted. that so way. So I went yeah. up and... They were moving that way for that record, at least. And I think mainly because of Graham's influence. It turned it turned more to a, uh, a country record than they had initially started. They were going to initially make that according to, uh, what's his name? Roger McGuinn. Uh, according to Roger McGuinn, later on, I read, 
that uh, he was going to try to make a record with all different kinds of American music. But when they got to country, they got they got sidetracked by Graham, and they wind up just making a country record. So uh, I, I got to be a part of that, and I'm really glad. Between the work that I did with the Birds and with Johnny Cash, I, I guess I've got enough notoriety that I can even keep working at this ancient age of 82 years, almost 83. <laughs> well, for, for people that don't know, I mean, the Bird Sweetheart of the Rodeo is one of the, I think, if you went to the Rolling Stone classic records of all time, rock records of all time, it's in that pantheon in terms of it being, it, it didn't sell a million records when it came out, but it was kind of the, the, the first volley of the country rock thing that came, you know, begat the, the, the Eagles yes. and Poco and on and on and on and on. What are your memories of the session itself? They seemed, uh, I would get there and JD both. We were used to getting to sessions on time. We would get there a little bit before, the schedule time of usually two or three o'clock. We just sit around till they all got there. <laughs> they would get there in some kind of a hippie, hippie bus, uh, like a Volkswagen, I think it was, and uh, unload and get in there and just take their time. We were used to doing th- three, three songs in a three-hour period. That's what we had to do with Buck Owens and different folks we worked with. We had to be productive right away. I mean, they... Buck Owens came to his sessions all dressed up like he could go do his show. These guys are very casual and very ca- and and we didn't mind because we we're getting paid session pay to just sit around, so we did that. And it seemed like they didn't always know exactly how they wanted to record a song because it was a new kind of thing for them. So a lot of ex- experimentation would go on. Sometimes some strange looks between those guys would go on, but uh, but they wound up pulling together. It took probably about three times longer to make a record there than it would have if it if it had been a capital record, just our country straight ahead country yeah. record. But that's okay. That's that's that was rock and roll, you know. That's rock and roll guys. <laughs> they did it differently, and I was okay with it. When you were playing, like. Um let's say a more traditional capital session was there like for you, the piano player, was there like a lead sheet or what, what were you given anything like written ahead uh, at the session or was it all just kind of people telling you what to play? Normally the the procedure was something like that. You would walk in whether the artist was known or unknown. They would have a tape of the song or, or a dub like a, they used to do vinyl dubs also. And one or the other would be played. And when it was be played, I would make myself a chart, just like they do in Nashville, a number chart, which make it, would make it applicable to any key. I'd write the whole thing out. It's, it was very simple shorthand. And then I would find from them where they wanted the piano to play lead or if they wanted me to play rhythm all the way through or if they want me to play rhythm and lead or if they want me to play rhythm and overdub lead or fields so once i got that uh once they clarified that sometimes they would not know and i could suggest what to play when and uh many of the time much of the time that's how it was that's how that went I, you, you just kind of you feel out what their desire is after you get the the context of what you're going to be playing. Uh, 
actually your roadmap. After you get your roadmap, ask them how they wanted you to fill it in or just play rhythm. I get hired a lot of sessions just to play rhythm. I guess I was a good rhythm piano player and I filled up the, the mid range for the, uh, uh, for the recording. And so a lot of times on the Buck Owen stuff, you, you barely can hear the piano, but I'm, I'm, I'm the glue that's kind of holding that rhythm thing together. You're listening to the Arts Hour, and today we're talking with Earl Poolball. He's our 2024 Lifetime Achievement Recipient for the Governor's Arts Awards, which will be taking place February 8th at the two Mississippi museums in Jackson. Before we leave L.A., I just wanted to kind of, you, you work with a lot of people during that time, and I was hoping we could just kind of name off some of them. I will. There, there's one thing that I forgot to mention uh, back about the Cliffy Stones Publishing Company. I want to mention that. Maybe you want to stick it in somewhere. I was in my little office at Cliffy Stones Music Company, Central Songs, one day, and a guy named uh, Bobby, I'll think of his name in a minute, and the, the writers of uh, Try a Little Kindness, we'll just say two guys came in with this great song called Try a Little Kindness, and they said, this is for Glenn Campbell, if we could ever get it to him. And I said, well, sure, I'll give it a try. You're right. This is a great tune. There was one verse that wasn't quite completed yet, but I didn't want to tell him that because the bulk of the song was so good. I didn't know if I could do that or not. I was thinking I could. So the next day I got on the phone, I called. This is when Glenn Campbell was doing his good time hour. He's at the height of his popularity. I called over to CBS, the TV show. And I said, hello, ma'am. My name is Earl Poolball. I work for Cliffy Stone Central Songs. Well, Cliffy Stone rang a bell with her, I think. I know it did with Glenn because he had a, he and Cliffy had done a TV show together back a long time ago. Back when Cliffy was uh, producing television shows, he did the, did the Tennessee Ernie TV shows, you know. Anyway, so I, would you please tell Glenn that I know him from Houston. I work for Cliffy Stone, and I've got this song for him that I think he would just love to hear. And she said, okay, I'll pass it along, and I'll get back to you. And I thought, well, that's the end of that or not. <laughs> and so about two hours later, I get a call back from this lady. And she says, well, Mr. Campbell, just love to see you, and here's the time of day next week Tell you come on over, bring that song. And I did, and he and I finished up that little verse that wasn't quite finished yet we did that in his office we did it in about the whole visit took 30 minutes because he and I were both really good at doing that <laughs> and and uh, and it was so good to see him and he recorded it about six months later and it came out the next year and it sold a whole bunch of records and it's still still uh, a uh, very classic song a lot of people still do it today try a little kindness I love that song. Now we'll get back to people I've recorded with as a, as a, as a piano player. That's where we're going to be. So you may have to jump this stuff around a little bit. I don't know if you want to. Yeah, I'll, I'll work it out. Among the people I played with, among the people I played with at Capitol, that was all, they were always an interesting couple to play with was Johnny and Joni Mosby. The Mosbys, they sang good. She sang exceptionally good. And he harmonized with her. I made a couple, three albums with them. I recorded a thing, one of the very first records I recorded at Capitol at the studios. I don't know what label it was released on. I think it was released on a different label, but it was the lady called Mrs. Miller. 
Mrs. Miller sings country. You know, it's the gosh awful worst singing that you could possibly have. But she had recorded Mrs. Miller sings jazz, Mrs. Miller sings Broadway tunes, Mrs. You know, she just wasn't a good singer, but she didn't care, and nobody else did. They they buy her records for party records to have her sing, and, and but. I, I played some great piano on that. I just loved it. Jimmy Bryant was a session leader, and he hired me to come over and play on that record. And uh, he had some really, really top drawer musicians in town that I got to meet on that session. So it was really, really great for me because I was just kind of breaking in. If you get a chance to listen to Mrs. Miller Sings Country, you will just laugh yourself to death all the way through it. Let's see who else. Scotty Turner produced some acts that I recorded with, but I can't think of their names right now. A few of the names that I was thinking of was like Michael Nesmith and Phil Oaks. Oh, Michael Nesmith. Oh, my God. Why did I not think of that right away? Michael Nesmith, I recorded with him. I recorded the, uh, it's, it's the first national band thing, that record, which was the first record that he recorded after he left the Monkees. And my old buddy, Red Rhodes, the steel guitar player, was the session leader on that. And uh, he had recommended me to Michael. And uh, Michael had heard of my recordings with other people. And I got to record that record, and it was just so much fun working with him. He's such a loose dude. Of course, if I had his money, I'd be pretty loose dude myself <laughs> about that time. But uh, <laughs> he was uh, he was fun to work with. And that's the sessions that the the real popular song, Joanne, was, was, was on it. Joanne uh, walked down by the river and whatever. I just can't say enough good things about Michael. I didn't get to do the second and third albums of that series because I'd already been sent to Nashville by Capitol Records. But I did get to do that first one, and I just loved uh, I just love it. Red Rhodes had been the band leader at the Palomino Club when I first went over there to play for the regular job, not my Monday job, but for the regular job. And he was he became a dear friend. He remained a dear friend up until his death. Well, also, because this will flow right into that, Red Roads got me on the session for Don't Bogart That Joint, My Friend, by the uh, Fraternity of Man. That's me playing the piano on that song of Don't Bogart That Joint, My Friend, which was became quite popular at the time. With a certain set of people. <laughs> and I did some work with Merle Haggard a little bit, but it was a production situation with me and Merle mainly. Assisted him and his manager, uh, Fuzzy Owen, uh, in, in producing the tribute to Bob Wills. It was called the Be- Tribute to the Best Damn Fiddle Player. Yeah, I remember that record, yeah. I have full production credit on that. So I'm real happy about that. It turned out well. The the final person I, I was curious about was Phil Oaks that was mentioned in one of your interviews, and I just wanted to hear a little bit about your time working with him. Oh, I, got, I forgot to mention Phil. Yeah. I only did one session with Phil, I had never heard of him before till somebody told me because, like I say, my head was buried deeply into country music. But he was such a pleasant guy. He was such a pleasant guy to work with. I got the country players to work with us on the session. And uh, his songs were so funny. They were kind of funny. That uh, Gas Station Women, that's a funny song. Oh, I love that song. And I think Jimmy Bryant played on that too. Uh I got Don Rich to come and play the fiddle, Buck Owens' fiddle player. Buck Owens didn't let his players play with anybody else, but he looked up Phil Oaks and found out how what a great act he was, and he gave them the okay to come because they were my buddies. Don Rich played the fiddle. 
and uh, the drummer was Jerry Wiggins, who had worked with me before, but he went to work with Buck, and he and I had worked together just around the L.A. scene, and he played the drums, and uh, I had Bobby Wayne sang the harmonies. I can't remember who else is on the session. Either Jimmy Bryant or James Burton played a guitar oh. on it. Were you producing, and, or uh, you were just playing on it? I, no, I was just, I was a session leader, session. a ranger okay. person on that one. There was there's another guy in the booth, but he didn't sit. Larry, um, no, his name wasn't Larry. He, he was the guy from Warner Brothers that was a producer guy, but he didn't know anything about country. That's why he kind of just turned it over to me. He says, "He wants to make three side, two or three sides of country music. Can you just get out there and do it?" So that's what I did, and I hired the people, arranged the tunes, and kind of around what he would was comfortable with. And uh, that was fun. Uh, somebody, somebody else that that uh, that you wouldn't think that I played with that I did. I Mary mentioned Linda. When Waylon would come to town, I would hang out with him. Well, I'd like to get into the to the Nashville side. So okay. let's. Um, yeah, I'll go on for. I can go on forever. <laughs> I don't want to wear you out. Let's I want to. We can't. We got to get to Johnny Cash. So I don't want to wear you out before right, we get to sure. Johnny Cash. Oh yeah, we got a long way. Yeah. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back for our final segment on the Arts Hour today. We're talking with Earl Poole Ball. He is the 2024 Lifetime Achievement recipient for the Governor's Arts Awards. Come on down and meet Earl and come to the ceremony on February 8th at two Mississippi museums. So Earl, uh, when we last left, you were in LA working with everybody and his brother, but then early 1970s, Capitol decides to send you to the center of country music, Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah, How did that come about? Well, Freddie Hart had been dropped from Capitol Records. He was signed to Buck's production company. Uh, they had fulfilled their obligations, and he his last record that they put out on Capitol Records was not a not a not a hit. So they were going to let Freddie go. Ken Nelson didn't have any. He thought Freddie was uh, washed up, <laughs> and uh, of course he thought a lot of the world was washed up, but, uh, he, uh, so Freddie had no label and there was this DJ down in, uh, Atlanta that loved Freddie's last, uh, album that had been recorded that was released and it had a song on it called easy loving. And he kept telling the promo man down in Atlanta where the head promo of capital was for country. He kept saying, you guys are stupid. You need to release this Easy Loving as a single. And he kept playing it like it was a single. And he kept getting calls for it and calls for it. And 
And he kept playing and kept playing it. And finally, the head of promotion showed up. The head of promotion called Ken Nelson. He says, listen, we need to we need to do something about this Freddie Hart record because it's so hot. I mean, they're playing it's 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 not even a single. And Ken and Ken would say, Well, well, I can't do that because he's not with the label anymore. He's not with Buck's company anymore, blah, blah, blah. And finally, Ken yielded to, to make his promotion man happy. So they finally put this record out as a single. And the response was overwhelming. It became a monster, monster hit. But by this time, the gentleman, George Ritchie, who later married Tammy Wynette, and that's a whole other story. George Ritchie had left Capitol Records. He's the one who produced that song. Uh, he had left Capitol Records and had gone to work for Columbia. And Larry Butler had already, who was the other producer in Cap, at Capitol Records in Nashville, had given his notice too. He had a deal somewhere else, also at Columbia. Because they were friends with Billy Sherrill and he hired them both. Because, and Capitol had no A&R person there at all. And so here we got this really big hit with with Freddie Hart. So they didn't know what to do. So Ken, I think he wanted to hire Cliffy Stone's son to be his associate junior producer because they go back way back and he and he and Cliffy were real good friends. But he didn't want to fire me. He liked me a lot. He liked the fact that I could I could I could pull things together when needed. So he decided, since I was a single person, he thought, <laughs> he said it was just inflexible, but I was having a good time, you know. I was having a good time. I was playing on these records. He decided to transfer me to Nashville to record Freddie Hart and whatever else might need to be done production-wise at the Nashville office. And so he did. And so I moved to Nashville, not wanting to go to Nashville, really wanting to stay in L.A., but... But I figured, well, you know, actually the business, the main part of this business I'm in is in Nashville. So I shouldn't fight this. Although I'm going to miss all the little rock and rollers I play with back here, all my friends that I like to get out and jam with. I'm going to miss all that. But uh, I was getting older. So I could either do that or I could quit the music business and go back to college. (laughs) And I just chose to go on to Nashville. And so I did. And so I kind of think they thought that, I think both Buck and Ken Nelson thought that Freddie Hart would never have another record that would do anything and that they could get rid of me at the same time if it didn't turn out. (laughs) You would be the fall man. I'd be the fall man, you know. So nobody would have to take any blame other than me and Freddie. And so... I got back there with Freddie. We get along together. We cut three number one singles and three number one albums over the next three years. And so we proved them wrong. And uh, I asked for a raise, and they didn't want to give me a raise. And Buck kept promising me that he would give me an override because it was through and for his production company by the, because he – Freddie, like I said, Freddie signed back with Buck's production company. He didn't have to, but he did. So I'm, I'm looking to Buck to get, because I'm getting overrides on this other stuff I'm doing, but I'm not getting anything back from Buck. And then he promised me through three hee-haws that he would pay me. Well, he didn't. 
So I decided that I needed to do something else. So I, I, uh, I uh, told him I couldn't do that. I was going to do my other things there. And I met Johnny Cash around that time. I played a, a demo for Harlan Howard on some songs that, uh, that uh, were sent over to Buck. And I also played the demo of uh, One Piece at a Time. And Johnny heard my music, and he decided that he wanted me to play a session with him. So he hired me to come out and play a session because his other piano, his piano player from his band was not able to come to some sessions. He used his band as much as he could. So I went out and played the session with Johnny, and we just hit it off right away. They gave me a job offer, and I said, well, this is a lot better than sitting around the office in a desk and taking orders from somebody in, in – uh, Los Angeles. So I uh, left that one situation and went to the next one, went on the road with him. And I traveled and did uh, 20 years traveling, doing television, being in the movies, just that and the other, you know. So it was beautiful. It was beautiful. Wonderful family people. It's just like any family up and down in and out. They have their, their problems and their disagreements, but, but they, uh, they pulled together, and I enjoyed it. it. It was my it was my day job for twenty years. <laughs> how many how many shows a year were you guys doing then? You know, kind of in that time in that early time period. I think we we're doing like one hundred and ten, one hundred and twenty, and then it settled into like around a hundred or eighty five or ninety, and then it got down to around uh, fifty or sixty. Uh, it it gradually got fewer and fewer, but. But he had a lot of people on his payroll, people at his office, and he had a, and a lot of family to help. And so he, he he worked, and he liked to work. He loved what he did. And uh, just like yeah, I Yeah, well, you know, talk loved. about the musical side of it, playing in that band. I was watching some kind of early 80s concert footage, uh-huh. and it's a, he had a pretty big group. I mean, like... He had a... Eight pieces in the band at one time, and three uh, three girl singers, and uh, plus him and June. So he had a pretty. When we got to be the great '80s eight, that's when Marty Stewart joined us. We had Marty Stewart and two trumpet players, and and then the other four. Let's see, it was two trumpet players and Marty, and four or five other people, and I was one of them. And so it was like an eight piece band and a. Th- it was a big it was a big group it cost a lot to travel them and uh you know he 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 needed to make money to travel but he enjoyed doing what he did we're talking with earl pool ball in the arts hour today and he is our 2024 2024 lifetime achievement recipient and we're talking about his years uh now with uh johnny cash um so what was the what were the what were the gigs like was it um the same show every night or were th- would things change up? How, how did that work? It would usually be about the same show every night. And once in a while, then after, if he would go in the studio and record something he really liked and wanted to perform, then he would add that in the show and maybe drop something out. And uh, it always ended with some gospel music. But uh, during the, the shows would be... Um, they would vary from he, he would he had a ninety minute show and then he had a uh, a two hour show and uh, he would vary in between those. The ninety minute shows would be for uh, play, times when we'd have a matinee 
and then an evening show. And he would usually do 90 minutes on those without a break. And then when they had the two-hour show, he would do an hour and take a break and then come back and do about uh, 45 minutes. Yeah. So, so what was he like as a boss and a, and a band leader? Like the musical side oh, of him? He was, oh, he was just so much fun. He, he had a great sense of humor and uh, he was, he paid well. And he was a, uh, he, he'd be over at the side of the stage while you were uh, trying to do something serious to be over there doing some kind of, some kind of something to make you laugh. <laughs> and uh, that would be before he would come out. Or while he would be out and before the girls came on or at, at any space where he could do that. And he was a good boss. boss. He was a fair man and uh, he paid well. He was a complex person, though. So, but we all are to some point. And he, uh, you would know when it was a good day and then you'd know if it was a bad day. And you just would sense that. And so you just do your just do your job on the days where there's not a lot of uh, room for communication or joviality, you know, but uh, the good days outweighed the bad. So that was the, uh, it it would be, there would be some days where, when perhaps he and June wouldn't be getting along quite as well, which happens in all the marriages I've ever known about. And uh, those were the days you just kind of did your job. stayed out. Keep your head down. Yeah. (laughs) Keep your head down, kind of thing. Get in, get in your bunk but and go was, to sleep. Huh? <laughs> yes, there you get, there you go. And we, but we went, we stayed in some really nice hotels, and and we uh, we had good food to eat. And uh, sometimes I'd ride on the bus with John and June, and there was a lady that uh, uh, wardrobe mistress that was a holdover from the television show. A very nice lady named Goldie. They called her gold because she had a gold tooth, I guess. And and we would, uh, uh, there would be some nice food on the bus. They'd cook. And uh, Johnny made the greatest campfire coffee. Really work you up, wake you up. And, um, and, and June made a thing called Stuff, which was with marshmallows and whip, or whipped cream. I can't remember which. And fruit. And it was a really, really good uh, snack or dessert. And uh, it was it was a nice night. But mostly we the mostly the band would drive in Lincoln Town cars, uh, three to a, a car. And uh, that was most of the time. And uh, we would get someplace and we'd lay down, we'd go to sleep for the afternoon. We'd leave in the morning. And go to sleep and sleep the afternoon and get up and do the shows that night. And next day we get up and drive to the next place. We would fly into a town, <clears throat> say Atlanta, and then we would uh, work clusters. Uh, it, it would be uh, shows all around there, maybe five or six out in the, re- uh, the region in different towns. And then we'd go in and play the Fox Theater or someplace like that in Atlanta. I think it's the Fox, is it? We'd play the big theater there. And then we fly to the next big place, and we worked four or five. We would u- usually be out for about ten days to two weeks, working shows, 
I was wondering about kind of like, and, and he also toured internationally and I was watching a show uh, last night. I think it was from like Wembley Stadium, just the enthusiasm of the crowds, the international crowds. Oh, yes. I was curious about what are your memories of maybe a, an especially enthusiastic country or city or. Well, people were really, really enthusiastic in Prague that uh, we talked about where you saw the, the last eight version. They were very enthusiastic there. I remember a guy uh, backstage who was able to get back there. He said, uh, uh, just tell, please tell Mr. Cash we're so glad he came to play our prison. <laughs> that's, that's what he said. Wow. And uh, there was uh, the, the, oh, uh, the big, the London show. Uh, what is the name of that theater in uh, London? We did this great show at, uh, is it? not to London Palladium, or maybe it was. Yeah. It was a great show. We'd play, we'd play over in Europe maybe once every year or something, and it got down to like once every other year. Germany was really, really uh, responsive. The, the people, the crowds in Germany, because Johnny could speak a little German because he'd been in service over there in the Air Force, and so he would, he would address the crowd in German, Oh, and they just love that. And uh, a lot of German fans over there. Big, big fan club in Germany. And uh, England was just great, too. Uh, Ireland. The, oh, we, one, one of my favorite memories was uh, whenever we were in Ireland, they, they, because we were going to play a show that was close enough to uh, the front there where they were battling each other, north and south, they de they they declared a ceasefire for a, a couple of days, so we could get into town and do the show and leave. They quit the battle, and he wrote a song by the way called uh, "I Cross Close My Eyes and Listen to the Emerald of the Sea." Listen, kiss But most of all, I... it's it's a it's a song about Ireland. Lips are soft as cider down, and da 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 da. The things we've done and seen. Forty. He wrote a song called Forty Shades of Green," about Ireland, and the people, north and south, that came to this show, they knew the words to it. And as he would sing this song, the whole audience sang the words along with him. And that was just remarkable to me. It was very humbling. Uh, I just I just sent chills all over me. And uh, on that show, we had Chris Christopherson. And uh, I got to know Chris. What a lovely guy. And uh, I'm trying to think of who else was on the show. Uh, it was just a wonderful, wonderful time that I spent with Johnny over in, uh, over in Ireland too. So things slowed down with him as his, he, his health kind of declined. I was curious about kind of the, that last stretch of when he did the records with Rick Rubin and there was kind of a, a rebound maybe in his popularity, at least in yeah. the U S is that, is that hello? Yes. Uh, that uh, 
yes, the, the crowds picked back up. They had slowed slowed down a bit, and and after those records with Rick Rubin, the crowds did did pick back up. Uh, of course, after the first one, his health did not uh, permit him to do a lot of uh, traveling at that point. So, um, uh, but he when he when he did retire, he was he was popular, and he's become more popular now, like you say. Two of my best references are I can't get a reference from them, you know, like. Uh, <laughs> I had a, I have a card that says references from Johnny Cash, Graham Parsons. <laughs> it's just a card now. Yeah, yeah. Anybody, but <laughs> but uh, at one time I had I had that card made up. He yeah. Johnny Johnny Cash was a, just a really really great guy, really great guy. So once he went off the road, you had spent you know a, a career with him. Is that what did I yeah. do? <laughs> Okay. When Johnny, they gave us, uh, we had a meeting about uh, okay. six months before uh, uh, they retired that they said, we we're going to give it two more years. If you got, if you all have any outstanding debts that you want to start paying down, now's a good time to do it. And so I had, I drew me up a plan. <laughs> I was going to be totally clear and have money in the bank within two years because, you know, like anybody else, you overspend on your credit card sometime. So um, oh, I was working on that plan. And then six months later, uh, he, uh, it, it, his health had gotten worse. And uh, he uh, reached down to pick up his guitar pick and almost tilted over. They were having to put tape on the floor the the uh, production manager would put tape on the floor all the way from his dressing room to the edge of the stage because he was having trouble finding the stage so uh at that point they decided to pull the retirement button like a a year and a half before they had decided thought that they would and uh so uh that was that was it and after that, I just, uh, I did a movie with Peter Bogdanovich. I'd been doing a couple all, all along. I did, uh, they all laughed and the thing called love. And I did, uh, a movie up in Canada with him. And, uh, then I moved back to Mississippi for about six months. And then I, uh, went to Branson for about six months and I didn't feel at home there. And then my friend Dale Watson out in California, he said, and I mean, my friend Dale Watson out in Austin, Texas, says, why don't you come here? People are just going to love what you do. I said, really? He said, yeah, they like the real music, the real rockabilly and the real country here. I said, well, that's what I do. Maybe that's where I need to be. So I came out and uh, uh, stayed with a friend and uh, out on a lake. I was very blessed to have a nice place to stay. And I slowly infiltrated Austin, Texas, with my music. <laughs> and uh, I even did a, a statewide commercial for their lottery here after I got here. And I did one movie uh, with the, some people that were doing a movie here. Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, Screen Door Jesus is the name of the movie. It's, it's a weird movie. If you get a chance to ever get a copy of that movie, it's very weird. And... Uh, so and that's and that's all of the filming things I did because my uh, I have a little physical problem now with with a that walking I use a walker now yeah and uh, but I can still do music my fingers are working but uh, 
I don't do the walking a lot. So if you if you can't walk from one side of the stage to the other without an aid, you really there's not many roles for you to fill here. So I gave up on that part of my career, but it's okay. I had I was in the limelight with that for a while. I learned a lot from Peter Bogdanovich, and uh, that was a lot of fun. He was a great friend, and we wrote some songs together back in the day. Well, now you still have a, a, a standing gig in 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 Austin. Is that right? Tell us a little about that. Yes, I work on the weekends. Uh, Saturdays, I have a, a band called uh, Earl Poole Ball and his fantabulous friends. And we play on Saturday afternoon at the Continental Club from 3.30 to 6. And we, it's mainly for tourists. They flock in. And I'm always taking pictures with these tourists or signing a Sweetheart of the Rodeo album or, uh, or something that they've picked up there in town that they want to get signed. And uh, I, I take I take a whole 30 minutes out of the show to do that with people. And uh, but we we have a, I have a wonderful time with that band. It's a band I put together of a bunch of younger guys and they got into what I'm doing and I get into what they're doing. And so we I get to play some music from from young cats and they get to play some music. They get to play some of the songs that I've recorded on. Like I'll do some music from the Sweetheart of the Rodeo and I'll do some Johnny Cash classics like Get Rhythm and Folsom. People just jump up in the air at Folsom Prison Blues. More whooping and wallowing goes on to that than you'd hear at a rodeo almost. And, uh, And so then on Sunday nights, I play with another band, the same club, from 6.30 to 8.30, it's a band called Haybale, H-E-Y-B-A-L-E. And we've been doing that for like 23 years. I joined that band shortly about the time I got there. There's a, a guy that I knew from, uh, who I knew him up from, I knew him up in Nashville and I knew him in uh, California. And he's originally from this from Texas. And he wanted to put that band together along myself and Red Volcard and some other people. And it's been a good band. I'm, I'm sure Kevin Smith is a bass player, and he he's Willie Nelson's bass player. But Willie doesn't work a lot, so when he's in town, he plays bass with us. And then sometimes we have a sub bass that plays there. So it's all a really good musicians uh, all the way around for me. I'm I'm really blessed with having that place. Uh, S- Steve Wertheimer owns the club, and he and I uh, get along really great. And he makes sure I have enough work, so I like that. That's amazing. Earl, you've got, you got such an amazing story and we really, really appreciate you spending the time to talk with us and share some of it with us today. Oh, there's so much, so much there. And I appreciate you, you listening to it and uh, maybe the folks will be prepared to, to, uh, some, I look forward to seeing a lot of the people come out. So thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate it. And please come out and, and meet Earl in person. He's going to be at the uh, annual Governor's Arts Awards that will take place Thursday, February 8th at the Mississippi, the two Mississippi museums in Jackson, along with all the other recipients. Please come on out. It's a, open to the public, a public reception uh, in advance. Find out more details on the Arts Commission website at arts.ms.gov. Uh, so for those of you who tuned in late or you'd like to share this show with a friend, you could go to the MPB website that's at mpbonline.org. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, 
Please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart devices podcasting platform.